you know, one other thing, just as a kind of a reminder for folks, uh, if they have some feedback for us or if they've got some topic or question for us, hit us up at uh, that email account we set up, um, info at brewery.fm. So it's I-N-F-O at brewery.fm. And we realize the FM is probably one of those top-level domains that you're going, is that real? Well, yes, it is. Um, in fact, if you got to the website, you got to that TLD. So uh, if you've got feedback, hit us up there. Uh, we definitely encourage you also to go over to iTunes, uh, give us some feedback there, give us a rating, um, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Um, nevertheless, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies employing bots to harvest information for us, separated by a giant ocean, talking cloud, SSL certificates, and technology. I'm Dan Usher, and this is episode 10, recorded on 8 April 2015. These go to 12. No, they only go to 11. But then Spinal Tap sets in and sits everything right with the world. Well, I mean, we can't all be best in show, Scott. Uh, but yes, we can try. Or we can just be happy that the Surface 3, not an iPad killer, has a TPM. So, yeah, that was one of those interesting things that popped up in the Ask Me Anything Reddit that a couple of folks were, I guess, uh, participating in. And Paul Schaefline... Uh, brought it to my attention that apparently there is a TPM in the Surface 3. So for all of you that uh, are looking to BitLocker and domain join and use virtual smart cards, have at it. Surface 3 apparently will support it similar to the way that the uh, Dell Atom processor devices will. So probably that little Dell uh, device that you've got, Scott... Uh, the one that uh, I may have handed off to you at uh, SharePoint Saturday, Virginia Beach, um, that may have an Atom processor in it. You might be able to BitLocker it and use virtual smart cards with it. Yeah, I could care less about either of those things. Not important. Oh, come on. You could get the cute little pluggable docking station like Joel Ward and plug that bad boy in and use it for your daily workflow. Yeah, the thing's slow enough as is. I couldn't even imagine throwing BitLocker on it and seeing what horrors that brings about. All right. Fine. Be that way. Yeah, I do what I can. Yeah. So for those of you that are interested, the Surface 3, not the Surface 3 Pro, but the actual Surface 3, uh, does have a TPM built into its Atom processor. So pretty cool. But moving on. Um, another item that we had follow-up on... Uh, Reston Spug happened this past Monday at uh, Microsoft Reston. So for those of you that were able to attend, hopefully you were able to enjoy Danny Jesse's uh, awesomeness. And statistically speaking, you'll come back for another session. Um, but he uh, gave a great presentation on building cloud-hosted apps for SharePoint 2013. Kind of went through the, you know, the foundational information that a lot of folks kind of skip over and just say, oh, go read the TechNet article or the MSDN article. So it was good to... Uh, have him, you know, come and lay those foundations and then just show it was possible. Uh, if you missed it, you're able to catch it on Thursday, I think, for the SharePoint Fest DC. Uh, there's still time to register if you're listening to this on what is my Wednesday and Scott's Thursday. 
uh, you'll you can still uh, come down to the Washington Convention Center, pay a small fee, and catch up on some great things with SharePoint. But Scott, anything else uh, in the follow up, or is this going to be the shortest, uh, shortest show of all time? <laughs> if only it could be. Um, yeah, one last thing. Uh, we we've talked a little bit about the mess that is SharePoint patching and all that stuff in the past. Uh, so our good buddy uh, Stefan Gosner uh, had another uh, uh, article that he threw up on his blog uh, addressing one of the kind of primary questions around what happens with uh, the CUs today because we have the security fixes uh, that are released through Windows Update and then we have uh, new additional functionality and patches and just kind of um, non-security related fixes that are uh, weaning their way out through uh, the Windows Download Center and the SharePoint CUs. Uh, so apparently there was some question around whether security patches were going to be included in the CUs since they're coming out through that Windows Update stream. Uh, they are still coming out through the CUs. So for some organizations, you know, if they want to get everything at once, uh, put everything through uh, in just one stream of testing everything, that they might want to hold off and just wait until the CUs are about so they can get the security and non-security related fixes in one go and, and lay those down across their farms, however they see fit. So, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought the uh, the Microsoft team, originally they were going to push all CUs through Windows updates, and then they realized, hey, we should only push security updates for our different enterprise platforms, such as SharePoint or Exchange, through uh the you know windows update and allow administrators to still choose when they wanted to apply cus so now now it's hey if there's a security update uh, you're going to get the cu along with it because that's going to be pushed through windows update nope uh so security updates only through windows update right that that piece hasn't changed um, security related fixes through windows update non-security related fixes will be through the download center and through uh, the, the normal or the, the legacy uh, CU patching process. Yeah, you're still going to have to reach out to the download center to go get a CU. So security patches are going to roll out first thing. The, that's what's going to be in Windows Update. So Patch Tuesday rolls around. Uh, bang, there's your security fixes. Uh, you can go ahead and deploy those immediately uh, and then wait for either the individual non-security related fixes or the full-blown CU to come out to get all the other stuff. Or you can say it's really a lot easier to patch once rather than patching you know, 10 times, right? Say there's seven security fixes and three non-security fixes. So that's that's 10 patches to go through. Or just lay down uh, one CU. I, I mean, effectively, that's installing 10 individual patches, but it's doing it all at once for you. Gotcha. That, that sounds like it's probably a, a bit easier. But I'm going to guess if there's some criticality to some of these different patches that... Uh... They may, get the, they may get the security fixes before they actually get the CUs that go along with them. Yeah. Again, it's going to depend organizationally and, and depending on needs of the business and, and where everybody's kind of sitting right in line. I would think for a good chunk of folks, they can hopefully stay more towards that old model of waiting for the CU just to simplify things. 
because SharePoint patching's hard enough as it is with doing the PS configs and the bouncing and, and everything else that goes on, on top of testing regressions and everything else. So if you're individually laying down each of these fixes and then you're running uh, PS config and all the other things afterwards to get it to where it needs to be, doing any kind of regression testing or figuring out what went right, what went wrong, uh, is going to be exponentially more difficult, especially if you've got full-blown kind of ALM in your in your environment and you actually have proper dev, um, test, UAT, staging, and, and production environments, all that stuff. So, you know, if you're looking at patching more than one or two environments, um, the CUs are still definitely going to be easier. Good point. Hopefully, uh, hopefully folks realize that and aren't double applying patches inadvertently, you know, going grabbing the security updates and then grabbing the CUs and not realizing that uh, they can just get it all done in one fell swoop. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, that's fine too, right? The, the installers are smart enough that they don't install the patch if it's already there. So that's okay. You know, if, if folks do want to go down that path, it's just a matter of how many times do you want to do that iteration of uh, we're installing a patch, whether it's security or non-security related, and then what is the impact of doing that and what do we have to run afterwards? Does it bring our config DBs uh, like to, uh, out, of, out of whack? Do we have to do scheme updates? Are we running in compatibility mode? Um, all, all those kind of things. I'm sure you run into that, uh, you know, walking into client environments and doing remediation and saying, what have you guys been doing? Um, you know, or, or you'll go in someplace and say, oh, yeah, you know, we're at uh, CUX or, yeah, we absolutely deployed Service Pack 1 for SharePoint 2013. And then you get in there and you go, why does your farm still say um, SkyDrive then? Uh, well, we, we, we installed the patch. Yeah, but did you ever run PS Config? Did you do all these other things? And they, look at you and they go, no, I didn't know we had to do that. Um, and it just turns out that, oh, you know, this server was patched one way. This one was patched another. Everything's kind of out of whack. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to do those remediations and bring everything in line once it starts to deviate a bunch like that. So yet another reason to use Office 365, right? Just one more. You'll always be on the latest and greatest. Um, and they've been pretty upfront that Office 365 is far enough away from what on-premises SharePoint was, at least on the back end and the way they handle patch deployments and everything else, that it's it's just it's, it's a different beast. It lives and breathes and does its own thing. Yeah, craziness. So I think that's uh, I think that's all we had in the follow up. Um, you want to move on to the kind of the general news things that we've noticed going on? Folks might be interested in. Uh, yeah, yeah, there, there were one or two things. Uh, you, you know, we had another certificate failure this week uh, with Google this time. Woohoo! Um, so you, you know, uh, folks have probably caught this in the past where uh, things like Xbox or Azure goes down because a uh, SSL certificate doesn't get pushed out in time or something like that. So uh, Google had one of their uh, intermediate certs uh, fail uh, or expire and really didn't fail. They, they just kind of uh, didn't get it out there in time. Um, so they had, they had to push that uh, new cert out, let that uh, you know propagate through and get to every place it needed to be to pick things up. And then uh, woohoo, Gmail was back, right? Um, so th that affected some of the downstream clients and things like that for a while um, that were looking for that, you know, that chain of trust in there. And, and it just wasn't there because, hey, we, we let this one thing lapse, right? Um, so, so we see this happen with commercial systems all the time. Um, 
see it happen with on-premises systems too, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations that go down this path of saying uh, we want to do uh, MFA or like SSO uh, with ADFS or, or some kind of like an on-premises uh, identity provider. And they never actually think about what that means downstream when, um, you know, we've got a token signing cert that expires in a year. Okay, that's great. How are we going to handle rollover? What's your process going to be for updating that certificate, for uh, pushing it out to other systems? So say SharePoint authenticates against ADFS. Um, you know, once you update that certificate on one side, you've got to go update it in a couple other places as well and tell all those other systems that we're trusting it that, hey, here, here's a new thing and um, we need to do that. So it's, it's, it's not just, you know, the, the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. It's uh, all, all the organizations that are running these systems as well, you know, we tend to see things like that time and time again. Yeah, that one always uh, that always <clears throat> killed me is when we were using uh, ADFS and the certificate would expire after a year, and people would be like, "Oh no, why is it not authenticated anymore?" And we'd just say, "Well, uh, did you guys actually update the cert?" And they're like, "Oh, that can't be the issue." And you point them at the TechNet article, and you say, "Here's how you generate a new cert. Here's how you load it." go forth and fix it and they would uh, turn around and you know they'd deny it and then two or three hours later they'd finally come back and they'd be like hey look the system's working again and you'd say use the tech Night article and they'd say yep and yeah it, it's amazing what happens when we do things the way they're supposed to be done yeah you know it, it's funny you mentioned the ssl cert thing um a, uh, a friend of mine a couple of years ago, it cracked me up. They were trying to authenticate using a client cert, um, soft token client cert that they had acquired through, uh, it was like some digital identity system and it had expired and they just didn't realize it had expired. And they'd even opened up like a help desk ticket. They were like, why, why is it I can't authenticate? And sure enough, uh, they just had a dead cert. They just had to pay the twenty-five bucks and get it uh, get it renewed, and they were off and on their way. SSL auth once again, but yeah, SSL certs—they're uh, they're a pain in the butt. There's actually speaking of SSL certs, one of the spots that these pop up left and right in SharePoint these days is with a good old workflow manager for 2013. And I want to say our buddy Spence Harbor has a, a great series of articles out there about how to properly do certificates for workflow managers. So if you get a chance, uh, go check that out. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of components in the stack because everything's separated now, right? So you've got things like workflow managers sitting off to the side, uh, and you've got some of the other systems too. Um, Office Web Apps is one uh, that I run into occasionally where, uh, you know, if you go out and look at how to actually secure that with SSL, um, and, and, you know, you'd think, okay, we just need a wildcard cert and things like that. Um, you know, if your friendly name has an asterisk in it, uh, you can't do it with office web apps. So it kind of blows up and says, uh, you know, why would I work the way the rest of the web works? Um, so, so, you know, there's, there's some trickery to get, um, all those different things working, but there's definitely some great resources out there for them. Yeah. Probably the one that just cracks me up though, is <clears throat> folks that don't follow the documentation, uh, especially when it's like uh, the app domain that you're setting up for SharePoint 2013. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we can get away with just using a uh, subject alternative name. We don't need to actually have a wildcard in there. And boom, five minutes later, they're crying because they spent the, you know, 100 bucks on a, a third-party CA and unfortunately it just doesn't work. So 
Certificates. They're everybody's bane of existence. I'm convinced. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's always worth it to. Yeah, how to put this? Uh, uh, so, uh, read the documentation. Read the documentation and also um, spend the money on what you need up front, right? So, you know, there, there's companies like uh, VeriSign for SSL, right? They, they can be extremely expensive and they'll say, yes, we'll give you a wildcard cert, but it costs, you know, I, I don't know, $5,000 a year and we only give you, um, you know, they artificially limit the number of uh, subject alternative names, the, the, the SAN names that you can have in there, right? So let's say uh, you give us X amount of money, it's a wild because you're, and by the way, you can only have um, five SAN names in here. Um, but, you, you know, quite often it's worth it to take a step back up front and make sure, yeah, uh, what do we need for uh, SANs in there? Um, you know, if we're doing a wild card, do we really need a wild card? Um, have we done it properly? Does it have the right friendly name? All those things to, to work across um, all the different systems that it's going to need to. Um, you know, it, another thing I run into, uh, I, I don't know how much you run into this with your folks kind of being a little more um, government focused, um, but just the, uh, you know, somebody will buy a wild card cert for uh, uh, star.contoso.com. And then they'll want to deploy some subdomain in there like um, star.apps.contoso.com. They don't realize that that's a completely different domain name and it, and it exists at a different level. And um, by the way, you need another cert and everything else for that. So uh, planning, very important, right? Take a step back, figure it out, test it out, make sure you need what you need to do, um, or just hire your favorite consultant and let them uh, get you through it. Yeah, and while you're while you're hiring that consultant, you should probably celebrate uh, National Beer Day. Is it National Beer Day? We we don't have National Beer Day out here in Australia. Yeah, every, every day is National Beer Day. You can go to the pub or hotel anytime you want. Well, I mean, you could do the same thing in the U.S., but uh, <clears throat> your your favorite place, Dogfish Head Alehouse, uh, they celebrated National Beer Day today by tapping a few 120 minute IPA kegs, which. Uh, decided to do a little quality assurance on, and I can definitely say they were they were nice and fresh. Um, so if you can get back by tomorrow, which would be your Thursday, uh, you can uh, come and celebrate that holiday as well. But yeah, probably not going to happen. But uh, I'll leave the one twenties to you. you. You just keep sending me pictures, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, you could use that uh, that Back to the Future clock tower that you've rebuilt using Legos to somehow, you know, get backwards in time, right? <laughs> Stop motion Legos are always the thing to do, uh, you know, especially when they're faithfully re- recreated. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, so for those of you guys that haven't seen this, uh, Geekology had a blog article the other day that was with regard to uh, basically recreating the entire scene from Back to the Future using Legos um, and using stock, stop motion to kind of recreate the whole uh, scene with Doc Brown where he's, uh, he's you know, trying to rewire things so the DeLorean can hit 88.1 miles per hour. So, um, Scott, what else uh, from a news perspective is going on uh, that you've picked up on recently? Uh, so I, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit. Uh, I saw Office Lens for iPhone and Android came out this week. Um, you, so why is this important? Why is this cool? I mean, we've had, uh, at least for me on, on iOS, we've had 
uh, OCR capable scanning things, kind of scan from any angle and figure them out for quite a while, whether it's uh, I use an app called ScanBot or uh, Evernote has some scanning technology. So they have Scannable by Evernote um, does seems to do all the same kind of things. Um, and it ships it into multiple systems and everything else. So why, why would I want to use Office Lens if that's just if I'm in the, the OneNote space? Yeah, so, I mean, this this is almost like uh, I, I don't have a good justification for it. But um, about a year ago, Microsoft came out with their OneNote app. And then on Windows devices, they had what they called Office Lens, which was uh, effectively something that would make use of your Windows phone camera and would scan in whatever the contents were into your OneNote. So you could take a picture, it would do the OCR on it, it would take uh, you take a picture of you know some diagram that you've drawn up on a whiteboard at an angle, and it would flatten it out and then do the OCR on it. Um, pretty cool technology, and it's nice that it's kind of woven into you know OneNote. But again, for folks that have been using Evernote for a while, they may have something comparable or like ScanBot. You know, I use that for all my receipts whenever I'm out traveling. Um, so it, I guess it's more just kind of that cohesive story. They finally put it out for iOS and Android. Uh, so they'd have parity across all the different platforms. But the caveat to this is, and I want to say we covered this a couple shows ago, uh, OneNote actually was starting to do OCR. So if you loaded in an image or you drew something, uh, the OneNote application itself would go through and start doing OCR against that, or you could force it to do OCR if you wanted to get the results quicker. Um, and furthermore, this was documented on the uh, the tech news or the kind of the release notes for the uh, OneNote app for iPhone and Android was while there was not a separate office lens component, you could take a picture through the OneNote app um, and have that attachment be scanned. So it's if anything, it's kind of like uh, Facebook when they took the messaging uh, component and externalized it. Um, in the same way, you know, OneNote is taking the Office Lens component and externalizing it. So you don't necessarily need to have OneNote installed on your iOS or your Android device. You can just have Office Lens, take photos, uh, make certain that you're logged in, and boom, shakalaka, uh, those items start showing up inside of your OneNote folder, which I guess, you know, for some folks... If they're in a purely uh, Microsoft stack world, uh, this probably means a lot to them that they can just go through and take those pictures and not have to worry about uh, having to open up OneNote and annotate it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it certainly sounds nifty for folks that are in that space and kind of trying to uh, stay in that world. I guess I'll stay in mine and, and be a Luddite for a little bit longer. Well, so Microsoft is actually trying to make it even easier to come back into the Microsoft world. Um Something they announced yesterday, so what would have been your Monday, uh, Microsoft released or re-released what they call their Microsoft Work and Play uh, bundle, which is, uh, I believe it's Xbox Live, uh, Office 365 Home, uh, Xbox Music, and then Skype Unlimited plus Wi-Fi, and I kind of scratched my head on that one and said, well, I'm familiar with Skype Unlimited, but what's this Wi-Fi component? Because I know I've had my laptop or my uh, my MacBook Pro with me in like Starbucks and it'll pick up if I've got Skype open and it'll say, oh, you can pay two cents a minute to use uh, Skype Wi-Fi. And I kind of scratch my head and I say, well, why? I can just use the Google Wi-Fi. Um, but they do have this uh, this bundle, the Work and Play bundle. If you go out to Microsoft.com, Work and Play, um, it's basically a 12-month package uh, for 150 bucks, which is a bargain. 
Um, if you go out and buy them separately, I want to say it's like two fifty or three hundred dollars, depending on you know when you buy during the year. So kind of nifty that they're making it uh, more accessible for folks to get into uh, the Microsoft ecosystem, I guess you could say, of you know doing your work and whatnot, and not having to uh, go down the path of uh, using you know Google Docs or iCloud or things like that, but just using the native Microsoft apps. Do you happen to know if that's a U.S. region-only thing, or is that available in uh, other other regions as well, so like APAC or EMEA? Um, you know, I don't know. They have a fair usage policy that applies to all this, and I'm sure that's some lingo, so some real-time follow-up. There is a line item on there that says something about Xbox Music uh, varying based on time and region so it may definitely be one of those things where uh if you are in australia for instance um you're not able to use it but it couldn't hurt to try at least uh checking out you know see if you can at least get to the link um from wherever you're at in the world so if you're yeah it looks like it's uh online in the u.s store only so they've they've got some uh some limitations built into there but if you're in the U.S., you can have some fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely a good point. Um, so that's uh, that's one thing that they recently released. And then also, um, you may have noticed uh, they were giving away, again, more storage on OneDrive uh, with the Xbox Music app, um, where basically you would upload your music. And I don't know what technology they integrated in, but you can basically use uh, your OneDrive uh, kind of as a like uh, some sort of system to you know play your music for you in the background as you wish instead of uh, going out and using Spotify or Amazon Music or something like that. Yeah, I you know I think they're starting to leverage some more of those client side APIs that they release. So if you take a look at uh, the the consumer space and and what they've been doing. So the, the the OneNote team's kind of been killing it on the API side, and you know they've got all their new clipping tools and things like that. Uh, but the OneDrive APIs are being updated as well. So those those are just the consumer ones, right? They they have some limitations now with what other developers can do with them. Um, but clearly Microsoft is kind of working in that space, and as those APIs get updated, that lets other apps outside. Uh, whether it's their own apps like Xbox Music to do that integration, um, or hopefully eventually third-party apps uh, work work their way in and be able to uh, do some of those things. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, in in the past we'd always kind of questioned if Microsoft was realizing the consumer space was uh, the one that probably would help them. Uh, continue to sustain the enterprise space um it seems like they're starting to get that now and they're actually really trying to invest in that consumer space to make certain that uh, folks realize you know how to use it at home uh, at a low cost and then i won't say it's a high cost in the enterprise but it's uh you know it's more uh, scalable in the enterprise for whatever needs are needed yeah it's definitely a different model and and goes that way but certainly exciting to see uh, you know, I'm a little leery of um, some of the enterprise stuff. So I don't know if you saw that uh, they announced the end of uh, App Fabric for Windows Server. Uh, so support for that ends uh, April next year. Uh, and, uh, you know, that has some interesting downstream impacts for some of the systems we work on, like SharePoint, right? 
Um, so, so we've got App Fabric built into there and Microsoft saying, hey, uh, just go ahead and deploy uh, Redis Cache. Um, and you can go ahead and deploy, use your Azure Redis, ca Redis Cache. And uh, if you're on-premises, uh, here's the janky way to go ahead and deploy Redis Cache on Windows, on-premises, and yeah, have fun with that. Um, so, so they had that, and then they also had a little bit uh, you know, there's been, there's been a couple other interesting things that hopefully they answer at Ignite. So uh, I don't know if you've caught that uh, web web forms, uh, ASP.NET web forms has been deprecated. So SharePoint's pretty heavily dependent on that based on the versions of .NET it's currently built on today for 2013. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens on that side as well. Does the underlying engine that drives a lot of this stuff, or at least... Uh, uh, the, the caching and display mechanisms for it, do they have to change quite a bit to keep up with the march of what some of the other server groups at Microsoft are doing? Or does on-prem come back out and, you know, they say, hey, guess what? We're still stuck three years in the past because uh, that that's a release cycle and we're still trying to get out of it. When uh, when did they actually say that the ASP.NET web forms would be deprecated? I might have missed that announcement. Uh, I will have to pull it up. I know I saw some people chatting about it uh, with Mr. Uh, with Mr. Bear today, uh, but uh, I'll look that up and and throw it in the show notes. Yeah, that would be helpful. I'm I'm curious because that, uh, as they like to say, changes everything. Um, weird, very strange, very 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 strange. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, you know some of the other stuff going on uh, in that realm, uh, not so SharePoint-ish, um, but more kind of the Microsoft stack. You know, again, kind of blows my mind the number of announcements that are popping up uh, <clears throat> in that Azure blog and in the uh, different Azure tweets and events that they're ho holding across the country and across the world. Um, one of the more interesting ones to me was something called the uh, VM reboot logs. So whenever your VM actually reboots, uh, now inside of the old portal, surprisingly, not the new portal, um, but the old portal, you can actually go in and see, uh, you know, when uh, maintenance was done on a rack, for instance. And if you have availability sets turned on, obviously they're going to do their best to make certain that they don't turn off both racks. Uh, to inadvertently power down both VMs inside that availability set. Uh, it happens, but, um, you know, to be able to go back in and look and see, oh, look, they're performing maintenance. This is a planned maintenance, so that's why the VM got shut off and powered back on. That's why we're getting that lovely little message when the window comes back up, uh, when we remote desktop into a machine that says, hey, why did I get turned off? Um, but there is that little logging feature that now shows up. So I'm guessing it's part of the operational insights that they're just surfacing through uh, the management portal, which to me, again, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's kind of a nice little uh, nicety to be able to say with assurance, yep, now we actually know why uh, the network layer got reset for like a Ethernet um, adapter that we happened to set manually on a virtual machine, which you should never do. Um, but you'll be able to point back the logs and say, yep, it did get rebooted. So that was one of the neat things that popped up this week. Uh, one of the other kind of interesting things that pops so, up. So uh, real, real quick yeah. on that. So, so they have a ton of telemetry going on in the back end, right? Um, so, so one of the things you mentioned there was um, if you have uh, VMs in an availability set, right? So, so for, um, for folks that 
aren't familiar with those. So when, when we get two VMs or uh, two machines in an AV set, basically Microsoft says uh, on the back end, when they deploy those across hosts, those VMs are going to be deployed on different hosts. So that way, if a whole host goes down, uh, your, your other VM is going to stay up, right? And that's how you get your financially backed SLA around VM uptime and all that stuff. So um, I haven't seen that too much where if you have an AV set and uh, they actually both go down um, because Microsoft has a financial responsibility to pay you back when that happens and they bust SLA. So they they, they tend not to uh, break that one if they can, as long as everything's configured right um, on on your side as as you've deployed things through. Um, But we we, we do run into that quite a bit uh, with folks where, you know, they they go, oh, my VM rebooted. Well, did you have them in an AV set? No, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to pay for it. Well, guess what? You weren't in an AV set. There's no SLA around that single machine just hanging out there by itself. Um, So so it's pretty important from kind of a costing and planning perspective to – figure all those things out up front, right? Again, we're back to uh, let's understand the systems we're deploying into and and what has to happen with them to make them work the way we want them to. Yeah, I think uh, for me, this hit me probably two years ago. I wish uh, this uh, reboot log had been available because we'd gone through and we'd done kind of an overlay network on top of Azure, which you're really not supposed to do, but we did. And in as much... You know, we went through and handset all of our Ethernet adapters. So, unfortunately, we weren't using availability sets. Um, our servers got migrated to another box, and when they did that, they got rebooted and they lost their network adapters. And so, it's kind of a pain in the butt to try and determine what was going on. Um, if we had had this uh, this reboot log for our VMs, uh, we could have at least gone in and said, "Oh, look, it got rebooted last night at you know uh, 1 a.m." Maybe we should try using the IP address for uh, what the management portal says. But yep. yeah, well, it, you know, you kind of started your story off on a bad foot because you said we did a bunch of things that we weren't supposed to do, and when it didn't work the way we expected it to do, had we done it the right way, then <laughs> it, it, you know we would have been in a weird place. So I, it, you know, that kind of goes to the point of you, you've got to leverage the platform the way it was meant to be. If you're not, unexpected things will happen. This might have helped you. You know, you would have said, oh, my machine got moved from uh, one host to another, but you still would have had to um, re- rely on some other things to, to get you going and figure things out, right? Um, and it, it is really easy to get locked out of your VMs, and especially if you've made some of these changes to the NICs and things like that that we're really not supposed to touch because um, they should all be driven by the fabric. So uh, the, the team's gotten a lot better over time. We've got um, a, a bunch of agents and extensions now uh, that let us get in there and do things like password resets, reset IPs, swing from um, static to dynamic, things like that. Um, but we've just got to be cognizant, you know, building the systems up front. But, uh, you know, you're certainly not the only one that starts the story with, hey, I, I, I built it the wrong way, but I wanted it to work my way because I wanted to use the platform. Um, but from the other side, you know, the, the guys who are going to um, give you your SLAs and, and, and again, those are those are financially backed kind of things. So um, to get that, you've still got to be in a supportable state. So it's, it's, it's just important to kind of keep those things in mind um, when everybody sets out down that path. No disagreement, man. I think it's more just one of those where it's the when you're initially learning the platform, you may not realize some of the little things that will kind of nip you in the bud. So uh, I, I have definitely learned my lesson and 
definitely am using availability sets as much as possible and trying to do everything uh, through that network service layer instead of just doing things, you know, manually, which may work in some platforms, but does not work in this one. Yeah, you know, you know it's interesting. I see um, uh, a lot of folks kind of come over from the AWS world, the, the Amazon side of things, uh, where from the very beginning, you're taught that your machines are disposable, right? At any time, we should be able to trash something and stand it back up. And um, a lot of that's kind of just bred out of that Linux mindset of, of let's automate it and script it out and everything else. So, you know, if you come over from the Windows world on that side, I think it's a lot easier to adapt and um, think of your kit as kind of uh, a, a throwaway disposable resource, right? Uh, individual machines aren't important. It's more about the functions of what they have to do and how do we stand those functions back up quicker. So what are all the different building blocks that we need to put together to have a holistic solution in place? And, you know, if, if folks could come into the Azure platform with that mindset a little bit of, uh, I, I'm not on-premises anymore, right? I, I shouldn't be thinking about um, what happens if a VM goes away because a VM will go away. It, it, it's totally a disposable resource, and that's the way it's designed to be in, in kind of the IaaS world. So it, it's not about uh, if it goes away. It's about when it goes away. Um, how do we architect the right way to actually have everything work and, and come back and, and keep on functioning and everything, right? Yep. No, I mean... That's that's probably been the one thing that has been the bane of my existence in Azure is having to explain to folks, you know, just the way uh, you might have done something on premises or you might have done something in another cloud service provider in their IaaS world does not necessarily mean that's the way you're going to do it over in Azure. So, um, so some other some other Azure news. Um, they released what they call their uh, their Azure Resource Explorer, which uh, to me, not having done a huge amount of uh, experience with it, but it kind of reminds me of what they did for uh, the Office Dev website, where you can go uh, play with JavaScript and whatnot in the web page and pull back, uh, you know, kind of test information. Um, this seems to be something similar in fashion where. Uh, they're taking the tools and making them web-based and making uh, more of like your PaaS services, your platform as services, <coughs> excuse me, platform as a services, services available to you through the web um, to kind of see what your endpoints are and give you some uh, generic code that you can kind of use as like your starting point when you're developing uh, code chunks, which pretty cool if you ask me. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to play with it at all. Yeah, uh, so, so this is actually really neat, right? Um, one of the things that uh, everybody kind of uh, loses sight of, so uh, we, we get caught in this world, um, and, and this used to happen you know, up until a couple months ago. It's gotten a lot better. Um, some of the SDKs or even uh, like the CLIs and, and the PowerShell tooling for Azure, um, you'd sit there and go, why doesn't my commandlet do this thing that I can do through the management portal or something else? Um, so not, not a lot of people seem to have caught on that uh, they're really not doing anything magical, right? They're driven out of um, the public API set. So if there's an API out there for it um, and something like the PowerShell SDK doesn't handle it, uh, you can write your way around that and call those APIs directly, right? You've got to go through the grunt work of um, 
constructing the authentication bits and making sure you've got uh, you know the ability to call with the right headers and things like that in your um, HTTP requests. But as long as you can do that, you can do anything against the API. So, um, so, th- so this is really cool for a couple reasons. So uh, one, it exposes everything that's out there, right? So if you're in the management portal and you're thinking, um, you know, gee, why doesn't it do this one thing? Um, you, you can actually hop through the something like the API Explorer, um, drill down into that particular subset of the API and say, oh, look, there is a method there to do that. Now let me find a way to call that method. So in the past, that would have meant going out to MSDN, reading the documentation, figuring out how, am I, how can I put all that together together. Um, how am I going to code that up in PowerShell or a console app or um, you know whatever uh, technology we're going to use? So uh, that part, the the, the friction around um, how do I call it and how do I make it work, um, that goes away a little bit with this tool too, right? So the the resource explorer not only lets you drill down into the API, uh, but it also lets you go ahead and construct API calls. Um, that you can run directly against uh, your own subscriptions. So if it's kind of a, a, a one-off thing, so um, uh, something like uh, building out like uh, uh, like melded LB sets, um, or uh, I've seen some of these things uh, with kind of the auto scaling groups that are that are broken in the portal, but you can make these calls through the API kind of thing. Um, now you can just go out to this uh, API explorer and authenticate against your subscriptions and, and go ahead and do all those things straight away. Um, so, so it could be really helpful for those one-offs of, uh, hey, the portal doesn't do something. Maybe I need to do this one-time configuration. Um, and then also just for drilling down, how do I construct that request if maybe it's something I want to automate and build in until the, the CLI or uh, a particular SDK picks up that functionality itself. Yeah, and if you're using a Mac and you have two-factor authentication, uh, you may run into some problems using Safari. Just a little tidbit. <laughs> Who uses MF? Oh, man, you and your two-factor. <laughs> well, you know, I'm that one guy that likes to use two-factor just in case so someone doesn't accidentally go and use uh, resources and burn through my credit card. But that's just me. Yeah, you're good enough doing it on your own. Yeah, it's true. Very, very true. Um, so a couple other Azure announcements. Uh, probably not going to go through all these because your ears are so, <clears throat> your ears may start bleeding. Um, but uh, Microsoft yesterday asked, put out a, uh, we'll call it a lifeline um, to all of us to help shape the Azure storage iOS library. So uh, kind of interesting. They're you know just looking for feedback. Um, what we as iOS users would be interested in seeing uh, for Azure Storage. So kind of the idea behind this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my interpretation of this, was more you know as a developer for applications on iOS, um, how to make Azure Storage more pluggable uh, for those application development pieces. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 exactly that, right? Rather than having a user voice or something like that, here let's go out and directly solicit feedback. We're, uh, you, you know, we're looking for ways to get developers to consume these services more because 
it is all about consumption of the service, no matter what the service is. So we've got this particular one we think we see a growth point in. Um, let's go out and solicit feedback and see kind of the, the major use cases and, and where can we improve that, right? Because the storage libraries do uh, quite a bit. They're not just your, your blob storage. Your storage accounts also have um, queues and tables in them too, right? So if you're doing kind of NoSQL kind of stuff, you can do uh, quite a bit of that automatically without going to something like DocumentDB. You can do it um, just straight through your out-of-the-box Azure storage accounts. Uh, and then if you're looking for those queuing systems, right, you, you want like MSMQ Lite, then, then like you can go ahead and do those too and figure out how you want to push and pop things off the stack and, and do your messaging within that. And then you can also, um, you know, part of it is when, once you integrate and you start using that service, um, hopefully... Uh, you know, I, I would bet from a sales perspective, uh, everybody's hoping there's a way for you to consume additional services, right? So, um, you know, now that you've got the mobile components tied into app services, uh, well, hey, let's go ahead and consume some of that and, and start to do uh, notifications and, and things like that. Um, so, so it all kind of ties together. It, it bleeds in nice, makes a nice story. Um, and and it, it's always nice to see them going out and soliciting feedback straight from the community, right? That's that's never a bad thing. Yeah, I'm curious on this one if it was just more one of those things where they were, you know, using uh, their regular uh, different modes of soliciting feedback and just weren't getting what they wanted. And so they said, well, folks aren't using iOS or they aren't using storage libraries or they aren't using storage, so to speak. So like you mentioned, the blob store... Uh, the tables, the queues, and whatnot. Um, they're not using those. Maybe we should uh, reach out and see if there's some way we can encourage them or at least uh, get a better idea. But um, Last two things, and this one is also related to storage. Uh, Microsoft put out a short document uh, called the Azure Storage Table Design Guide. Um, so it's a cute little download you can pull off the Azure blog, and it is, you know, really kind of, this is kind of one of those things where I just kind of chuckle because, you know, having taken like database design classes in college um, and going through like the normalization and whatnot and understanding how that works um, and taking a storage class and understanding how, you know, spindles work and how uh, bits are written, uh, big Indian, little Indian style um, it's interesting to see uh, Microsoft put out a document that says, hey, here's how you should uh, use table storage and the design principles that go along with it and how you should you know, store your key value pairs and uh, tables and how you should go about using queues and how the entire uh, storage structure works um, and the best way to get a you know, make it you make it useful for whatever your application is that you're hosting on Azure or consuming. Um, probably the one thing that they contain in here that just made me giggle was they have anti-patterns. Um, so, you know, typically we hear about patterns and practices. We, I typically don't hear about anti-patterns. So I just thought that was somewhat uh, interesting and kind of caught my eyes. Hey, maybe I'll uh, dig into this a little bit deeper to see what they're going on talking about. Yeah, how to do things the wrong way. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they have all sorts of guidance out there, right? Not just for the developers, but also for the folks that kind of sit over in our side of the world too. You know, they have um, network uh, design guides. So if you want to design your, your VNets according to kind of best practices, um, they have uh, storage design guides for things like 
planning out and configuring your storage accounts properly. So all your high IO, IaaS VMs are going to be able to do all the things that they need to do and, and be pretty and happy and keep chugging along. So um, I don't think a lot of people realize that that stuff's out there. You know, they hit the Azure site and they hit documentation and then they go, um, yeah, you know, they, they might immediately dive into a particular API or something like that and, and get a little lost. Um, but they have just a ton of uh, white papers and guidance and, and everything else out there. It's, it's, it's out there. You just got to dig around a little bit to find it. Hmm. Digging around. You mean it's not two clicks away? Darn it. Huh. Um, so I don't know if the, the last item we have around Azure is really uh, worth mentioning, but uh, if you've used uh, the SharePoint template to build out a farm or a SQL template to build out something with always on, high availability, um, <clears throat> you know, there's there are these great templates that are out there in the Azure marketplace. Uh, if you were an enterprise customer, you didn't actually have access to these. So as of yesterday, Microsoft has now made the enterprise marketplace uh, or the marketplace available to enterprise customers. So uh, if you have an EA in place and you're using Azure, um, you probably all of a sudden noticed a ton of stuff uh, pop up into your portal and you may be a little confused. Uh, don't start clicking on all of it randomly. Um, it'll probably help you out later to investigate and toy around and MSDM subscriptions before you start deploying some of these things to your actual production system. Yeah, there are all sorts of those things, right? So kind of uh, some of the resource gallery stuff, like you mentioned, like the SharePoint templates and the always on templates. Um, But this also gives EA customers access to uh, everything else in the marketplace. So um, there were all sorts of little add-ons from Twilio to SendGrid and things like that, that, uh, you know, they, they become integral to a lot of solutions. Um, but they weren't available through some of those kind of um, sub subscriptions, right? So in the EA, we kind of have that master EA um, subscription that gets access to the enterprise portal, and then that manages all the little sub subscriptions that are spun up in there. Um, it, I, I, I got to play around with this a little bit. It wasn't too clear from their announcement. So they, they talked about being able to turn it on and off, um, but it sounded like it was for all subscriptions. So, you know, I can envision a lot of organizations that would say, um, you know, maybe I want to let, um, you know, uh, my marketing department turn this on just for their subscriptions. So they can use like something like SendGrid to send um, email blasts, um, whether it's internal or external or whatever it may be. Um, but I want to keep this off for my developers to keep their spend in check and, and things like that. Um, and then it's also build uh, in the traditional way, right? So... Um, typically, if you have an EA, whoever you've picked that up from, if you've picked it up straight from Microsoft or from a reseller, you know, you know law or something like that, um, you know, that's that's billed through them. So now, you know, as EA customers start to consume these services, um, they're potentially going to have uh, additional bills, right? Because um, Microsoft can only um, bill those things out at the um, at, at the marketplace, right? or the marketplace rates, which is set by the vendors, right? So they've, they've got to figure these pieces out um, and what goes into it. So, um, you know, you can't use your volume licensing discounts. Um, if you had an in-place monetary commitment, 
Um, MSDN credits have always been this way, right? We can't apply MSDN credits to marketplace stuff um, or just any other credits in general. So um, you've got to have the subscription in place, whether it was created by you or an admin, and then that subscription has to have a payment method associated with it so that they can bill you for these extra services if you do consume them. So some of the things like those um, IaaS images, right? If I want to deploy an always-on template, um, there, there's no cost for that, for running the template outside of um, you know the services it actually deploys. But if I go and turn on like a clear DB or something like that, and it has a spend associated with it, well, that's a, that's a different story because now that other vendor has to be able to bill through and do those things. Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully we'll start to see more and more things pop up into the marketplace, though, that are uh, maybe community-driven. I know if you go out into the marketplace, um, <clears throat> there's already a ton of community things, but there's not necessarily, like, community appliances. Uh, it seems to be more kind of the community images. So I'm, I'm curious uh, when we're going to see more and more of these things pop up that, you know, from a enterprise perspective, uh, I could definitely make use of building out some of these different solutions and not have to deal with uh, taking, you know, some software package, dumping it in Hyper-V, uh, working with it, and then using that good old add uh, Azure VHD um, command to use bits in the background to get it to push up to uh, the big cloud in the sky. Um, so I think it's a good thing. I'm excited to see it. But like you said, uh, hopefully they'll add some granular uh, controls around it so that folks aren't just going hog wild with it as well. Yeah, I, what's a community image that, that you'd like to see? So you mentioned some enterprise-y things. Do you mean some of like the networking appliances and things like that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for me, it would be cool if somebody would go out and build like a uh, uh, Server 2012 R2 box um, that was pre-configured to do like Kerberos constrained delegation for smart card or for client certificate. Um, so that you didn't have to go build that out. And I realized you could easily just, you know, do a, a capture a disk and uh, make it a generalized copy and reuse it for later purposes. But it would be neat to be able to see more of kind of those, uh, those quote unquote, more appliance uh, role features pre-packaged and available that other folks put out there. Yeah. So, so for a lot of those things, right, like for that situation, you're kind of dependent on Microsoft to do it because that's using a, a Windows OS and what goes into that. So uh, I, I would bet the Windows server team would love your feedback, right? Here, here's more things that I'd like to see scripted out in the resource gallery or something like that. Um, there are a bunch of um, third party like network appliances and things that are coming down the pipe. So um, you've got like Kemp load balancers out there today, but um, in the future, you're going to have um, F5s and possibly some like virtual net scalers and things like that, um, all available through the marketplace. But those are more Linux based. Um, so you get a little more leeway with um, some of the OS deployments and things you can do, right? Windows licensing is still a sticky point. Um, so to a certain degree, we're kind of dependent um, on those teams to come up with something. So even stuff like uh, the, the SharePoint trial machine that's out there, um, you know, we're, we're dependent on um, Microsoft to go ahead and deploy whatever CU or service pack they're going to do onto that. And then we still need to come along and supply our own licensing and everything else that, that goes into it. Um, you know, the flip side of that is you could always go ahead and create your own uh, resource template and spin that up yourself with all the scripting and everything it needs to do and, and put it out on GitHub and uh, we could make you a very popular person. 
you know, I may have uh, something to do on the weekends now. Yeah, you, you need an extra hobby, didn't you? Yep, I did, Yeah. Everything else just wasn't uh, keeping me, you know, occupied enough. This will, this will definitely do it. Um, so, you know, while we're in this uh, this cloudy realm of things, uh, just to make mention, uh, there are other clouds out there. Um, the Google Cloud and the AWS Cloud both are, quote unquote, innovating on a regular basis. Um, if you want, you know, kind of a, an interesting read though, the Google Cloud Platform blog out on Blogspot, uh, they have some really just out there, um, like user stories that they just kind of throw together and you, you read through it and you're like, why would they ever think to do that? Um, but they're really interesting. So if you're, if you're curious about, you know, things you can do with other cloud platforms besides just Azure, um, check out the different blogs that are out there. They're in the show notes. Um, they're, they're fantastic. And, uh, I noticed that you deleted my favorite blog, Scott. Dear Azure. We already talked about Dear Azure, Dan. You, 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 you keep digging up the past, and you've got a shovel, and you dig, 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 and I, I just keep trying to throw dirt back on your day. You know, maybe I'll just uh, go watch some MVA videos and recertify on my SharePoint 2013 MCSE then. <laughs> Good luck with that. This is probably going to go about as well as, uh, you know, being able to take certifications from home. Show me your wrists. Let's make sure you don't have anything magical up your sleeves. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if this is like in a, a day late for April Fools, but the Microsoft Learning Group announced that instead of taking exams to recertify for certain certifications, you could actually just go and watch Microsoft Virtual uh, Academy videos, which I guess you know kind of makes sense um, for some topics. If it's just kind of a refresh, you know, if it's going from like Server 2012 to Server 2012 Part Two. Okay, just kidding. That was a big change, so that certification probably does need to be redone. But, um, you know, some of the certifications out there, maybe uh, this makes sense. I don't really see how it makes sense for most of them, though. Um, yeah, like like you said, stuff changes at such a rapid pace now that I'm not sure how you pull this off for uh, a lot of the stack, and especially in now that certifications have started to test more practical skills, um, you, you know, over the years, there's been a bunch of new question types introduced. And, you know, it's not just uh, case studies and um, multiple choice questions anymore, right? There's potential to actually uh, write code in some of these things now and, and validate it and make sure that it's right. So uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, is, is this just kind of for um, some of the, the easier certifications are, I, I guess not easier, but more um, end user focused. So something like the, uh, like the MOSS certification, right? The, the Microsoft Office specialist, um, or, or are they going to introduce some of the, uh, the, the more technical bits and pieces into there? Um, certifications is always a sticky subject and, and clearly they're changing that program a lot. They've, they've been playing with it quite a bit over the past year, right? M MCM is gone and you can take tests from home and you can uh, recertify in some cases through MVA. So, uh, you know, the sky is kind of falling in some regards. Not only can you recertify through MCA or MVA, um, you can go out and uh, write an app to get a certification. So if you're a terrible test taker like me, um, and you're trying to get your MCSD, you can actually, for certain uh, certifications, 
go out and as long as you meet the objectives and the application that you develop, um, get a a certification out of it. So more on that over on the borntolearn.mslearn.net blog from the 30th of uh, March. Um, In the show notes, definitely something interesting for you if if that's kind of your bag. Yeah, well, you know, it, it just keeps on changing. So as 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 long as they keep on chugging and, and figuring stuff like that out, I mean, I can see um, all sorts of loopholes in there, right? There, I don't know how they're going to vet these things and figure them out, but it's it's pretty easy to go out and do rent a coder or something like that, and uh, you know, potentially it could be cheaper to pay somebody to write your app for you than it would be to actually plunk down the hundred and fifty and take the test. Um, so it, it, it'll be interesting to see uh kind of what measures they come up with uh to stop people from uh cheating along the way but as a as a project manager isn't it easier to delegate such a task to someone else that knows the actual corpus with knowledge <laughs> what's a project manager well yeah um some other uh other cute little things uh microsoft learning is doing uh, they announced Azure for students, so it falls underneath kind of the BizSpark <coughs> Biz program. Uh, if you're not familiar with BizSpark and you're running a small business and you're paying for all your licensing, you're missing out a ton on uh, what Microsoft can give you. This is actually, excuse me, a part of their DreamSpark, um, which is kind of similar, um, but basically what they're allowing for is uh, no time limit, no cost, no commitment, no accidental charges, so... Hey, come use our platform as a student. Um, if you're a college student, this is probably like the uh, the gateway drug to using cloud um, without having to actually pay for it. So pretty darn cool. Um, I wish they'd had this when I was a college student, uh, but using Azure for free. Well, they have that and they have, they have Office as well, right? Office for Education. So, you know, in a lot of cases, you can just sign in with your .edu address. Uh, and if your school is already signed on or if Microsoft has somehow figured out a way to have that relationship uh, with your institution, then you know you, you could potentially already be getting uh, office uh, clients and things like that uh, fully licensed uh, just through, through your educational institution. So uh, I, I know they've got a big push in that space, and they, they generally have a pretty big push with students in general. Um, let's get them on board today, get them consuming the services and using them. Um, and then hopefully they turn into, uh, paying subscribers later. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, to me, it's brilliant. Um, get the folks, you know, addicted to using platform as service capabilities now, rather than, uh, trying to introduce it later. Uh, you know, especially for, I see hackathons happening like UVA, a couple times a year, uh, I could definitely see something like this being the platform folks are going to start just building on because it's there, it's available, it's free, and they can stand things up pretty rapidly. I mean, that's one of the great things about cloud is why waste time, you know, going through that entire uh, cycle to buy things um, when you can just uh, go out and pull it down. Um, so the only other thing that, well, the only other two things, and I'll let you talk about the AWS one, but uh, the one thing that was kind of cool to me, um, and I'm actually going to audit one of these courses, uh, is Microsoft making some of their courses available through edX. So if you're not familiar with edX, guess what? Neither am I. Um, but essentially, if you're familiar with MOOCs, um, you are probably familiar with that edX. Uh, it's courses that are out there that you can take online. Um, if you are paying for them, 
you can quote unquote get credit if you're auditing them you know they're totally free you get the same experience you just don't get a quote unquote credit um, so for me I am hoping to start the C sharp class that starts I think on Thursday um, which will be kind of a nice refresher just to get my hands dirty again in the C sharp world ooh you're going to be a programmer again don't do it. You know, well, it's scary. It's more and more I notice that uh, everything that I do in the IT pro world maps back to some C-sharp, uh, you know, class library or something. And it's just kind of like, why why beat my head against the wall trying to get these PowerShell commandlets to do what I want them to do when I can just go in and hit the API directly? Uh, who was it? I, I think it was uh, Todd Clint. He had an article on his blog this week. So there was uh, uh, this this past week was PowerShell blogging week. Um, so, you know, all sorts of uh, folks who focus on the PowerShell space, uh, blogging about cool ways to do things. Um, and a lot of the most interesting blogs that like Todd linked to out of that, um, they were all about doing uh, programmer-ish things, right? So writing um, PowerShell functions, writing advanced commandlets, uh, working with uh, some of the native uh, like PS objects and things like that. So uh, quite a bit of the programming constructs, um, which if you come from that background, so like my background traditionally before I started doing the IT pro thing, I was a, uh, a .NET web forms developer for like six or seven years. That's all I did. Um, and then coming over to this side, I find that I, I leverage that stuff quite a bit still, right? And and it, um, it takes a certain mindset to think like that. And I think a lot of IT pros, at least in the Windows world, uh, they, they come over to this um, scripting and uh, uh, really it's a, it's a programming thing, right? They've, they've got to learn procedural programming and uh, if loops and, 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 and you know, fours and uh, all, all the different things um, that come down throughout that. So, uh, you know, it, it's nice to see uh, those things coming out there. And, uh, you know, I make fun of you for uh, going out and doing the C-sharp classes and things like that. But really, at the end of the day, those are only going to help you uh, within that IT pro space because, um, you know, there are a lot of times that uh, we do end up writing code in our jobs, right? Like we were talking about that resource explorer earlier. Um, I, I end up uh, whipping up console applications and things like that to go directly against REST APIs, or we do it with um, Office 365 deployments to talk to CSOM, um, you know, left and right to kind of fill the gaps. So, uh, you know, picking up those skill sets can, can only help you. And it makes it a lot easier when you sit down and you say like, all right, well, you know, now I've got to do this function thing in PowerShell and it has parameters that are passed into it and they can be typed and what does this mean and how do I validate them? Um, and it all just kind of makes sense because it bleeds over from that .NET world um, or just uh, having, you know, those those general methodologies down pat and being able to figure them all out. So um, as much as I make fun of you, like I said, uh, I applaud you for sitting down and doing those things. Uh, I'd, I'd give you a golf clap, but you wouldn't hear it through the microphone, so... Well, I might, but yeah, I mean, I think the one thing is, it's just interesting to me having, you know, in college gone through the whole world of Java and C and a little bit of C++ and learning, you know, the actual object-oriented side of things. And so hopefully having done that, a lot of this will seem fairly familiar and, you know, also all the PowerShell stuff I've done in the past uh, 12, 15 months. 
uh, will come in handy as well. Just to you know, since a lot of the PowerShell stuff that we see uh, really does seem like just C sharp code that uh, is more procedural, or excuse me, not procedural, just more of a, a scripting uh, kind of way of doing things. Just using C sharp, so it'll be it'll be interesting. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, uh, well, we we can dedicate a whole show to C sharp and just let you talk the whole time. That'll be easy enough. Um, so I think the last thing that we had it was uh, about uh, AWS uh, and some updates to the uh, EBS, the uh, Elastic uh, Block Store volumes. So uh, AWS used to be a little bit like uh, Azure. So so you know for Azure for a long time we complained about hey, disks are slow and we need to stripe them together to get the performance we want. Um, so uh, there were some cases in AWS where we did the same things because of, due to limitations for how big we could make a disk and getting to kind of the IOPS requirements and things like that. So um, they have an update out that lets you use uh, 16 terabyte disks and uh, without striping, get up to uh, 20,000 IOPS on a single disk. Um, so in the past, if you had a big beefy SQL server or something like that, and you had 16 disks attached to it, and they were all striped together to get you to the IOPS you needed, so you, you put that RAID 0 set together, um, you know, it was uh, it, it was a little tough to manage, not just because you had so many volumes, um, but also because you had to uh, really think about your snapshotting strategy and how you were going to do backups and things like that. Um, so now you have the ability to just say, hey, uh, let's just convert over to one volume. That one volume gets the same exact IOPS target as we had before. And now because it's a single volume, uh, management of it's a lot easier, right? There's no need to uh, figure out how I'm going to coordinate snapshots across 16 disks, things like that. Um, so nice to see that update come out. Uh, we get some really high IOPS single burst, um, just straight out of uh, general purpose volumes. Um, and, you know, it's it's n not a bad place to be. So uh, quite a few updates just around storage and, and what's going in there. So I think if folks are in that world where they're using RAID 0 sets and things like that today to get some performance, they might want to look at uh, some of these new targets uh, and possibly look at tearing a machine down and rebuilding it, bringing it back up uh, kind of with the new storage mechanism and or migrating their existing uh, EBS volumes over to this new format so they can just take advantage, if anything, of the simplified management of it, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think for those folks that are using things that require crazy IOPS, this is, uh, this is pretty big. Um, I know, at least over on our Azure side, unless we've got, uh, you know, if we've got a G series, we probably have some pretty good IO, but, uh, Otherwise, we're we're just kind of sitting dead in the water compared to what AWS is looking like it's able to provide now with IOPS at least. Yeah, well, you can do provisioned IOPS and things like that over in Azure, so you can actually get up to fifty k, right? And that's a whole additional. It's thirty k bigger, uh, you, you know, than what you're getting over on the Amazon side. But you know, Amazon still kind of has that um, breadth of options across storage, right? So on the Azure side, we've kind of got slow storage and fast storage. Um, because for the most part, a lot of that stuff in the middle is ephemeral anyway. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about like the, the DS series and the G series VMs and things like that, they do come with a lot of SSD back storage, um, but it's all temporary. So over in AWS land, we can actually say, hey, let's go ahead and provision me um, some general purpose SSD. 
or uh, let me go ahead and get something uh, a little beefier for my needs, right? Let me go into the provisioned IOPS SSD and then pick up some of these other new targets. So, uh, you know, AWS still provides you a little bit more flexibility on that side. Um, and then they also announced some uh, some regional replication and things like that. So the some of the some of the nice things that Azure had that used to be kind of Azure only things um, are starting to bleed into the AWS side. So you know typically it's been performance has been on AWS and Azure had some of the nice recoverability and things like that. AWS is starting to pick that stuff up. Azure is starting to pick up the performance pieces. So. Uh, again, you know, it's it's that commodity space thing, and and these two guys are starting to uh, bleed together quite a bit. When am I going to have a volume that's sixteen terabytes? I don't know. You figure it out. Okay, I guess we'll figure that out in the uh, the after show. Yep, let's do it. Sounds good. Rock and roll. All right, later, Dan. Cheers. Yeah, I don't know how much of an after show there's going to be today. I gotta hop off here in a few minutes. Totally understand. I'm sure Tim Farrell will be heartbroken, but somehow I'll make it. Uh, I gotta go. Um, I will say the uh, I think HBO Now is in the uh, App Store, so I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I, I saw it this morning on the Apple TV pop up. Yeah, I still have HBO Go through. So. Woohoo! Yeah, I I don't have HBO, so I might actually spend the fifteen bucks and binge watch. Uh, but I'll probably wait till I'm done with watching the show Arrow on Netflix. I've still got that to uh, to burn through first. 30, 30 day free trial, man. Go for it. Okay, well there we go. Jeez, um, uh, I thought it was interesting to see uh, Twitch, and I guess it's the Amazon network or Amazon subsidiary or Amazon. Yeah, Am- LLC, a- a- Amazon bottom. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to be streaming the Silicon Valley uh, season premiere this year. Yep. That's kind of crazy because that's, I mean, shoot, I guess iTunes does that occasionally too where they will uh, show the first episode of like The Walking Dead for free and then hope they addict you to that first episode and uh, get you to subscribe. But that's interesting that uh, Twitch worked out some sort of deal with HBO. So. Yeah, there, there's there's been all sorts of things. So, um, uh, you know, Apple announced the, um, uh, the the what was it the the exclusivity of uh, HBO Now, and they said, hey, we're going to have this subscription thing. We've got it through April. You know, we're going to be the one online place to come if you don't have HBO Go um, to go ahead as a streaming only service and do this. Um, and then uh, it turned out there were some loopholes in that contract. So, like Dish with the Sling TV thing. Um, they're they're yeah. going to have HBO as part of Sling TV, but it's not HBO now. It's still the old HBO Go. It's just offered through Sling, which happens to be an online-only provider. So, uh, you know, somebody at Apple is probably pretty annoyed about that, that they lost their uh, exclusivity. When really they didn't. It's just a matter of the way the contracts were written and everything else. Yeah, I heard about that, and I just kind of laughed. I was like, seriously? <laughs> what happened in three months? Come on. Um Oh, well. Yep. Well, it's it it's it's one's is. HBO now and the other one's HBO Go. Big difference. Same content. Totally different name. Yep. Yeah.
something like that. Um, you're going to spend the 90 bucks to buy all the Star Wars movies through iTunes? Nope. I am not. I already have the despecialized editions. That's enough for me. Yeah, I'm debating. I, 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 you know, I already have the um, the DVD copies where you know Han steps on Jabba's tail and shoots first and all that stuff. So uh, I, I, I've already got better rips basically off the existing things that are out there. You know, if you had the old Blu-rays or things like that and ripped them yourself, you're probably better off because these are the uh, uh, the weird digital ones. I think it's going to cost 120 on iTunes. Um, it's a hundred through Amazon. And I can't remember everybody else's prices. Is that like Australia's prices? Because nope. in the U.S., I could have sworn this morning when I looked at uh, Amazon, they were selling Star Wars for ninety bucks for the entire six movies. Yeah, they, they might have had it on sale. So, so the announced price um, yesterday when they announced all the stuff. Um, Amazon came out and said they were going to be 99 and iTunes said they were going to be 120 and that, that was US. Good old greenback. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking right now at the Amazon website and it says pre-order for 90 and I guess they are not doing a bundle through iTunes, so you're forced to buy them individually at 20 bucks pop. So, yep. That's crazy. Yep. Yep, and they're available in some of the other, like if you're in iOS and you do like uh, Disney Movies Anywhere and you have that tied in, um, you can go out and do them through uh, like that app as well and, and do the purchase that way. But it is, uh, it's it's all individual. I, I imagine they'll come out with a bundle at some point because it just begs for, hey, bundle me up and push me out there. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'll just have to go watch uh, them up at on ABC when they reboot them. Yeah, you're looking forward to that one, huh? I am, but I'm I'm curious because I thought NBC was the one that actually had continued to use like Muppet characters and whatnot and a lot of their stuff over the years. So I'm curious how it is all of a sudden that ABC is picking them up and running with them. I don't know. I'm I'm waiting for Schoolhouse Rocks to come back. That'd be pretty nice. Yeah, you can just walk around all day humming "I'm Just a Bill." <laughs> yeah, well, let's do that. Um, sure. Uh, you missed uh, you missed the epic ending to college basketball over here, but I guess not too big of a, a deal down under. It was somewhat of a letdown to see Duke win yet again. So there are five championships now under Coach K, and good for them. Um, the cooler thing was if you got to the Washington Post website, they have emojis for all the different uh, all the different mascots for the teams that were in the uh, actual bracket for NCAA. So I was. Kind of cute to see those little emojis pop up and uh, snag them for later purposes. Um, basketball is that a sport thing? Yeah, it's they have this ball. They throw it and throw it through a net. They occasionally elbow each other. It's not quite as entertaining as hand egg. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you get to that. Cool. Um, well, if you got a jet, I'm not going to hold you up. I probably should go pass out since I've got a couple long days ahead of me. Yeah, you know, I got, I got to go write some uh, write some white papers, more documentation. Bring it on. Break out the tequila. Uh, not quite. Not, not, not there yet, but soon. All right. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Take care. All right, bye.